But in Genesis chapter 2, you'll notice that in verse 15, it says, The Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. So this is where we'll begin. So let's, let's have a word of prayer. Father, as we look into the word tonight and break the bread of life, we pray that you give us all ears to hear. I'm asking that you help me to teach clearly. Uh, Father, settle any doubts, uh, dissolve any unbelief, deal with any complexities around this text. But Father, more than anything else, help us to fall in love more and more with the sacrifice of your son, Jesus Upon Calvary's cross, in Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen. Okay, so you can see the command here that God gave to man when he placed him in the garden. Eden was to be his place of dominion and power. The scripture is very plain that they have rulership over this particular area. However, even though Eden was a place of perfection and mankind had been made in such a way that the Lord said that they were good, the adversary still had access to the garden in that area of Eden. And you'll notice then it tells us in chapter three in verse one that the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. So he was crafty. He was tricky. That's the early description of him. He comes to Eve and according to the scripture, he spoke to Eve. And in verse six, when the woman saw the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant for the eyes, a tree to be desired. She took of the fruit. She ate it, gave it to her husband. Both of their eyes were open. Uh, you can see then God had told them you can eat of all the trees of the garden. But this one tree that's connected with the knowledge of good and evil, you're going to stay away from that. And the reason for that is because once their eyes were open, having tasted that fruit, then they would know the difference between right and wrong, good and evil. And usually the people who have that kind of discernment also want to become the determiners of what is right. And what is wrong? So the Lord made it very plain. All the trees of the garden, you can taste the fruit of it. But this one tree is reserved and you're to stay away from it. Now that they have eaten, verse 7 reveals in chapter 3 the implications of what happened. It says, number one, their eyes were open. They knew they were naked. And it says they sold fig leaves. And you can see in verse Eight, they hid themselves. Now, all of these are the consequences of sin. At no time before did they need to hide themselves from God. At no time before were they ever afraid of God. At no time before had they ever acknowledged or recognized that, that they were naked. So the Lord comes along and he has three questions for Adam. And he's asking him, where are you? Who told you you were naked and did you eat of the tree? So Adam, of course, rather than simply respond in a, in a, in a, in a very gracious way with respect to God, he put the blame on the woman. And, and he, he did eat of the tree because of the lady. She blamed the serpent. The serpent did deceive her. That's what the scripture says. But it's over in First Timothy where it makes it very plain that the condition today with respect to uh, some of these statuses with men and women, it said it was it was Eve who was deceived, but not Adam, because Adam had heard specifically from God, don't touch the tree. But the adversary deceived his wife and then she led him right into it with his eyes open. So I'm just saying everybody's to blame here. There's no doubt about that. Uh, God's word was clear what they weren't supposed to do. But here's the thing. Once God had a conversation with them, he, he then lets them know here are the penalties that are going to be imposed. I'm going to put enmity between the woman and the seed. Her seed's going to bruise the head of the serpent. That's verse 15. Verse 16. 
said, I'm going to multiply your sorrow and the conception. So you're going to, in sorrow, you're going to bring forth children. So there, there's the origination of some aspects of the pain. And, and then here you can see where the Lord tells him in verse 18 that the ground is going to bring forth thorns and thistles. And in the sweat of their face, they're going to eat bread. Now, I know as well as you do that there are a whole lot of ladies who have children. They don't experience any kind of pain at all. It just it's not even difficult for them. And I've heard all kinds of stories and teachings where people go through. Well, I just don't believe in the curse and there's not ever going to be any pain with respect to, to childbearing. Well, I don't think anybody's believing in any kind of curse, but people still sweat when they work hard. See, sweat is a product of sin also. I don't think there's anybody running around saying, I'm just believing God, I'm going to have a sweaty day. Uh, these, the, these things are the result of the effects of Adam's sin that have been imposed upon his progeny. So all of us are in some shape, form, or fashion affected by this one man's sin. Now here, here's the thing. When Adam and Eve sinned, they were left in a bad state because of the fact they disobeyed God. But God did not ask Adam and Eve what would be the best way to rectify your predicament. He never said that to him. He never said one time, OK, what do you think we should do together in order to deal with your fears and your shame and your sadness and your sorrow right now? He never asked that. And the reason he didn't is because they wouldn't have had an answer that would have been sufficient anyhow. Now, I bring that out because we live in a world today where there's an entire industry of counselors who try to help people cope with guilt, grief, shame and fears. But we never, ever deal with the core issue, which is sin. See, never deal with the core issue. And when we know that man has come from the hand of God, then we realize most of the problems of mankind stem from how they have handled their inward sin. How they have handled how they're separated from God. If we don't understand that, we can never really correct people's behavior because we can't correct their thinking. You got to correct somebody's thinking before you can change their behavior. That's just that's just a basic, basic Bible principle. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. That's what the scripture says. And the Bible says we should bring every thought captive. So the, the, the situation they were in caused for some kind of reparation and God fixed it himself, not at their instigation, but because of their sin. And that's we'll get into this whole issue of grace now. They, they never asked for him to do anything, but he certainly did this on their behalf. And we live presently just like they lived in a world where they didn't even know God could even fix the problem. So they, they were in the garden. They sinned in the garden. But when God came to them in the garden in their state of sin, they didn't say, God, help fix me, help deal with my nakedness, because they didn't even know God could deal with that. He didn't, they didn't even know God would make a decision about that. And that's how people are today. We live in God's world. Our lives are burdened by sin. And the average person in this world doesn't even think that God has any way of dealing with how they feel. They don't. They don't even know it, which is why Jesus said, go around the world and preach the gospel to every creature so that they would know. So in chapter three, towards the end of the chapter, then you can see in verse 21, Adam also and for his wife, the Lord God did make coats of skins and clothe them. You can see. What's happening here now where in the preceding chapters, God had been father, creator and Lord to them. But now he has to relate to them in a priestly way because of sin. The way he interacts with them now is changing. It's just like just like when you when you were raising your kids, you know, every every day was a happy day until they broke your rules. And then when they broke your rules, then you had to interact with them in a way that they didn't necessarily want to be dealt with. 
So you, you, you were the lover in the morning and you were the lover in the afternoon and they appreciated mom and dad. But then when you told them stop doing this or you told them to do that and they failed to do it. Now disciplinarian dad or mom comes along and they see you now in a light that's different than how they've had to deal with you before. That is exactly what's happening here. They have never had to deal with God in a way where he had to deal with justice. Now, this is a, a priestly activity because verse 21 says he made coats of skins. So, so God is showing us that he became in that garden the first priest recorded in this Bible. Because These are talking about animal skins that he made. And when it says coats, you know, for, forget about all the pictures that you've seen of Adam and Eve with some little loincloth like they were living on Gilligan's Island. OK, <laughs> this this is the same Hebrew word that describes the linen garment or coat that the priest wore. It's the same Hebrew word that describes the coat that Joseph received from his dad. So when God took the time to make these coats of skin for them, even though he was dealing with their sin in a punitive way, he's still favoring them because he's making them something that's going to cover their sin, cover their their nakedness. That's the the beautiful thing. And you can see verse 21, uh, because the Lord made coats of skins uh, of necessity, then there had to be a sacrifice in blood. So an innocent Animal lost its life in order to furnish them with skins to cover their sin. This didn't have to happen before. But now all of a sudden, death has come into the world because of sin. What did he tell them? He said, don't eat of the tree lest you die. So death entered the world, entered the world because of, of their iniquity. So God becomes the first high priest mentioned here. In verse 21, and then because he made coats of skins and gave it to them, you can also say he's the first furrier. Yeah, he, he made he, he made skins for people, for you that, you know, like to walk the ditches looking for raccoons and then sell the pelts. You know, you can make make a little bit of money and maybe somebody can make you a hat or or or, or something like that. But the 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 the, the situation here is is. Uh, illustrative of how God has dealt with us on the basis of blood, on the basis, the basis of blood. So look now then at chapter four, because we see the example that God has set. An animal's life is sacrificed for sin. In chapter four, then you can believe that Adam and Eve would have transferred this knowledge to their kids. So notice verse one, Adam and Eve came together physically. She conceived. Cain was born. It happened again. Abel was born. The scripture says Abel was a keeper of sheep. Cain was a tiller of the ground. In the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstlings of the flock. It says the Lord had respect unto Abel's offering. But verse five, but unto Cain and his offering, he had no respect. Now, what happened here? We have already shown you in the previous chapter in verse 21 that the Lord acted as a priest in providing coats of skins, animal skins for the people to cover up their iniquity. Now, then, this knowledge, which has come to Adam and Eve, which is there to perpetuate from one generation to another. And we know it's the truth because it says in the days of Seth, men began to call upon the name of the Lord and they were offering sacrifices. But Cain, he, he decides He's going to do his own thing. He, he has his own notion of what he believes should please God and should be acceptable to God. He knows that God wants an animal sacrifice. But he just decides, I'm just going to give him some fruit, some vegetables right out of the, right out of the garden. And, and he just ought to be happy that I'm coming to spend time in his presence at all. And this is where the whole idea of man trying to issue and build and create his own works begins. We tend to believe God should just be happy. I'm talking to him anyway. I mean, after all, I am a great person. He made me, you know, and and 
Because of what Cain did, it produced problems. But notice Abel. It says of Abel, he imitated God. He brought of the flock. This is, this is what he brought. He brought something that actually was going to cover or make atonement for sin. And when Cain realized that God did not respect his offering, it's at that point the scripture says that Cain was mad. Verse five, very wroth and his countenance fell. So he was angry at God, but he transferred his anger at God to his brother. Because he couldn't get to God. God is a spirit. It's not like he could do anything that's going to hurt God. But the one that God was pleased with. See? See how he transferred the anger to him? What did the Bible say about Jesus when he was baptized in the River Jordan? This is my beloved son in whom I'm well what? Please. The scripture says he came unto his own and his own received him not. And the Bible talks about the works of the law, the deeds of the law. They were opposed to Jesus because Jesus was teaching something that did not have them put their faith entirely in the animal sacrifices. John the Baptist had said, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Everything was about to change. Okay, with with that knowledge, then you can see that there are many Cain minded people in this world who are works salvationists and they honestly believe the more I do the more I can curry God's favor the more I can earn my standing and status in the presence of God and in a church and if I do that that's a lovely thing and they are typically the people who are opposed to and want to destroy people who have a grace-based belief in the atonement Oh, folks, I'm telling you, some of the meanest people I've ever met in church are people who honestly believe they're saved because of what they have done and what they have gone through. But if you just simply say, I'm trusting in the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ for my full salvation, then some people are going to have a problem with that because they honestly believe it can't be that easy. I had a conversation with a man one time. At, 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 at the altar at one of the other churches and and he had lived a pretty pretty bad life most of his life he'd been a biker and never really was a good dad or a good a good uh a good a good husband but here he is now at the end of his life and he's got a lot of regrets and he's getting closer to eternity and you know how that is people live their life the way they want to live but then all of a sudden they start hitting some of them senior years and and then the, the, the eternity it just starts bleeping on the radar screen and they just start realize they're getting closer and closer to that you know so one morning after my message i was talking to folks about salvation telling them to commit their life to him and this gentleman wanted to pull me aside so I sat on the front pew with him for about 15 minutes explaining to him in a simple way the plan of salvation, how no one has done anything that the blood of Jesus cannot handle. Anybody can find forgiveness of sins. He's trying to tell me everything he's done wrong and all the problems of his life. And I'm saying, look, I'm telling the blood produces forgiveness and God can change you and save you. And here's what he said to me. Well, it just seems to me that's just too easy. See, he's looking for something to do. If I'd have told him to do 20 cartwheels and maybe pray and say 15 Hail Marys or something, then he probably would have been ready. But the fact that I said to him, just believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and included in that, of course, his repentance and everything else. That was too easy for him. Well, he ultimately did make the commitment to the king and God changed uh, the latter, the latter years of his life. But imagine how many folks there are in this world who truly have a belief that they're right with God on the basis of what they've done. They've earned it. You see, they've earned it. That's what that's what they believe. Now look at Genesis uh, chapter six. Uh, a little footnote to the whole thing with the works salvation people. Is that you'll remember 20 something years ago that uh, a woman named Diana and another lady named Teresa died at the same time. Princess Diana and Mother 
Teresa. And if you recall watching television programs about the documentaries of their life, you'll notice all you heard about was what they did. As far as their works, good deeds. Well, Princess Diana, she, you know, she traveled the world to clear the African fields of mines. And, and uh, Teresa had done all of these things to feed the lepers and clothe the lepers. Over and over again, we heard continually about what they did. And everything uh, they did uh, basically promoted the idea that they had to have access to heaven because of the good things that they've done. Uh, they, they didn't mention that, that the princess died living in adultery. It didn't matter. The fact that she helped clear minds and, and, and people loved her and she smiled a lot, then that, that was important. And uh, with uh, Miss Teresa, uh, whatever she, she believed, we, we never get any indication on television or in any kind of documentary about any trust in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation for the coverage of sins, but because of what we have done. And that essentially is what we have in the world today. The more good things you do, then people just automatically say, well, quite, of course they've gone to heaven. How do you, I know, world, you going to say somebody like that didn't go to heaven. I mean, after all, it doesn't matter how you've lived. Somebody does something bad to you and you die a horrible death because of the horribleness of it. You have to be in heaven. And this is the, the belief that has overtaken not only the, the culture of the world, but has come right on over into the church so that we don't even really make a distinction today between the qualifications to make it into heaven and then what qualifies a person to enter into hell. But it was Jesus who made it very plain that hell was made for the devil and his angels. But whosoever's name is not found in the Lamb's Book of Life is cast into that place called hell and ultimately the lake of fire. So in Genesis chapter 6 then, you'll notice verse number 8, it tells us of all the people on planet earth right now, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now here's one man. And other than Enoch, everybody else for the most part living in sin. That's why only eight people survived the flood. Look at chapter 8. When they finally came out of the boat, it said, Noah built an altar to the Lord, took of every clean beast and of every clean fowl, and offered burnt offerings unto the Lord. So here's my point. From Adam, Eve, Cain, Abel, Seth, and all of their seed, you end up with people who have the knowledge of God, who lived long enough to know Adam personally, because that man lived, according to the scripture, lived more than 900 years. So one generation after another generation still had Adam here with him telling everybody, this is how you should please God. This is what we did. Got put out of the garden. They, they're hearing it firsthand. This isn't secondhand knowledge. This is direct from Adam's mouth. And we come now to Noah's generation. And this thing, somewhere along the line, the train went off the rails long time ago. And now we've, we have only eight people, one family serving God. Just one. The rest of the people, when Noah was preaching righteousness, which is what Peter said Noah was, a preacher of righteousness, Everybody else will say, Noah, you've lost your mind. (laughs) Don't you you understand? God, he already dealt with man's sin when he put Adam and Eve out of the garden. He's not going to judge us anymore. There's not going to be anything negative going to happen to us. He's a God of love and he's a good God. There's no way on this earth God's going to let anything happen to us. And when it's all over, The cup of iniquity had overflowed. One family made it into the ark. One family made it out of the ark. And the scripture is very plain. All the people who believe they were saved because of their own works, their own beliefs or no belief at all. God had removed all of them from planet Earth. Now, what did Jesus say about the last days? That's how just like it was in Noah's day. So it'll be now. And you watch, you can see where people, they despise the idea of sacrifice for sin. They hate the notion. I'm talking about secular people now, godless liberals and other folks. They, they hate the notion that 
God sent his son into the world to die in our place. And as a constant motion to try to create something that's better than that belief over and over again. But when it's all over, the scripture says the meek shall inherit the earth. You realize this ball of wax is going to be renewed one day and all of us are going to be right back down here. And there's going to be uh, all the, the sinners and people from planet earth. They're going to be gone. It's going to be gone. God's going to give us a new heaven and a new earth. It's going to be wonderful, folks. I'm telling you, Nebraska won't be half bad without sinners. <laughs> I'm telling you. Yeah, this, this, this is going to be a pretty good place to live. Yeah, I, I like it. Okay, so the, the people who believe that their own teachings should predominate were removed. They didn't want to hear what Noah had to say. But I'm telling you right now, keep testifying, keep being a witness, keep proclaiming what you believe despite what people say to you. They may laugh, they may mock, they may call you narrow-minded, provincial, call me whatever you want, I'm going to be on the ark. The ark of salvation is open to me. Let's go to Isaiah chapter number one. Isaiah, Old Testament, one of those big books. Big books, Isaiah, and then you've got Jeremiah, then Ezekiel, but Isaiah chapter 1. And I want to begin reading at verse 11. Now, just to give you a concise statement of the condition of Israel at this time, the reason Isaiah comes on the scene is because Israel has become a sinful nation who has forsaken the law of God, but are still keeping all the rites and rituals of the temple. Look at verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, ye rulers of Sodom. Give ear unto the law of our God, ye people of Gomorrah. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? I am full, see that's the way of saying I'm tired, of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts, and I delight not in the blood of bullocks or lambs or of goats. When all of you come to appear before me, who has required this at your hand to tread my courts? Bring no more vain oblations or offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons and Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot away with it. It's iniquity, even the solemn meeting, your new moons, your appointed feasts, my soul hateth. They are a trouble unto me. I am weary to bear them. And when you spread forth your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. And when you make your many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Now, what is he saying? He's, he's telling us here that here are people who no longer love him, but are still infatuated with ritual. They don't have God, but they have the ritual. They know what to do. It's like the children of Israel being told by God when the cloud lifts and it goes up and it starts moving in a particular direction. You are to follow the cloud. But let's suppose that when they packed up all the utensils, all the furniture of the tabernacle, and they saw the cloud going that way, they decided, let's not follow the cloud. Let's go this way because we still have the tabernacle and all its furnishings anyhow. And so they head to the opposite direction. And as they're going, they realize when they set it up, oh, we're enjoying the Holy of Holies. We're still enjoying the candlestick. We're still enjoying the smell of the incense. They have all of that, but they don't have God. You see? They don't have God. And this is what had happened in Isaiah chapter one to Israel. These folks still had the routine. But they no longer had God. And people can fall out of love with God and begin to believe in the routine and honestly believe by having the routine they have God and the two are not the same. How many of you know just going to church isn't the same as being a Christian? You do know that, right? A whole lot of people go to church every week. And they don't love God. They don't have a relationship with them. They go because the spouse makes them go. They go because mom and dad drag them to church. They go because grandma, grandpa pick them up, take them to Sunday school. But it doesn't necessarily mean they have a relationship with God. The person who is passionate and on fire for God, that person is going to burn with a fervent heat in their relationship with God. No matter where you put them, put them in the coldest and deadest church. And they're still going to love God. 
It's not about the routine. It's about him. It's about him. That's, that's the most important thing. Uh, I'm trying to think way, way back when we first uh, started here, some 20 or so years ago, I had a lady who visited and she came out and, and enjoyed the teaching and uh, thought it was exceptional and wonderful and, and came several times. And, and then one day afterwards, she said to me, she said, you know, I really enjoy uh, the Bible studies and the teachings, and this is all good. I'm learning so much. But she said, you know, I, I, I really need the liturgy. I didn't even know what that was. I just, you know, I come from Cleveland, Ohio. I'd never heard that word before. I didn't know what she, what she was even talking about. She said, I really need the liturgy. I said, well, what is that? And she said, I, I, I need the, you know, the stained glass windows and the altar rails to kneel and, you know, the, 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 the preacher in his robe and the candles and the smells and all of that. And I said, really? She said, I feel like I'm in the presence of God when that stuff is going on, you know. And when she said that, I thought to myself, I wonder how many other people honestly believe that by doing all of that takes them into the presence of God. You realize when you read the book of Acts that the early church, they didn't have any of that anyhow. That Peter and James and John and Matthew, they weren't running around here with beautiful robes with, with bars on them to signify they were a doctor. And they weren't running around here dressed in a certain way and getting a special inflection in their voice when they read the scriptures in order to be impressive. These are folks that simply loved God. And all around the world today, there are people who are meeting and having church in rice fields. People in sides of hills and dugouts and caves, people that are meeting in jungles, meeting outside the city in a desert somewhere just to have a relationship with their God and not be persecuted. Sitting in living rooms, crowds overflowing into kitchens. They don't have a $8,000 stained glass window picture of what somebody thinks the apostles look like. If if those things are uh, within someone's window or church, fine. But don't make that part of my salvation and my relationship with God. See, That's not part of that for you. What you need is to be able to do like David said, I have hid your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. If they ever took away your Bible, could you still be a Christian? You know, Sometimes I wonder if a, if a, if a lovely nation like this is heading in that direction. I don't mean taking your Bible away. I just, I just mean just the, the, the critical spirit that is against people that, that love God and worship God. What's going to happen if we ever are put in a position where someone says, if you are going to read from the Bible, then it's going to have to be a Bible that's a modern version. You're not going to be able to read an older version because it has too much in that language that offends people. You don't want to hear it. Don't read it on radio. Don't say it and talk from it on television. We could end up there one day, folks. Yeah, it's important to know what you believe and why you believe it. We'll find out whether or not many of these preachers really believe what they preach. Yeah. Once they're facing a jail sentence and they're standing and they're standing in front of a in front of a black robed judge. And Bill Cody says, are you telling me you believe in that Bible? I'm saying, yes, sir. Then Mr. Cody's going to say, OK, you're free. So do I. You can leave. <laughs> but we'll get somebody else that doesn't believe in God. And that man or woman might look at one of you and say, if you're telling me that today in this world that you still believe that old hidebound book is the only the only book that provides the means of salvation and tells the only true story about how to get to God the Father, I'm telling you right now, I'll throw you in jail if you say you believe that. You'd be surprised how many people would say, well, I'm not sure I believe that. Yeah, but but folks, we, we've got to stand on on God's word and trust in God. And not in any kind of personal works. Let's go to Ephesians 2 quickly. Ephesians 2. And I want to quickly just make note of 
some statements here in the first three verses. Paul says we were dead in our sins. Okay, that's that's true. We, we certainly were dead. But you're still breathing. Uh, verse two, it says we walked according to the course of this world. So this world is moving in a direction that's out of step with the kingdom of God. And it's under the governance of the prince and power of the air. And then verse three says that in, in times past, we lived according to the lust of the flesh and desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath. So, so sinners, though they may never say it and may not ever accept that statement, according to Paul, people who are outside the kingdom of God are living under the dominance of a culture that is antichrist. Now, they don't have to admit it. They don't have to say they believe. It doesn't matter whether they believe it or not. That's what the scripture says. And this is what the text says. So that helps you to understand why you have people that will march out in the streets and burn down buildings and rob and loot and attack people and throw stuff at folks. That helps you understand why we have killing and murder and rape and theft and extortion and bribery and greed and adultery and all of these kinds of things. Because people live according to the thoughts of their minds. They just do whatever they want to do. But verse four, God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead, he raised us up together in Christ. For by grace are you saved. He's placed us in heavenly places. And verse seven, he wanted to show the ages to come, the exceeding riches of his grace. Verse eight, for by grace are you saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So it is the grace of God that has provided our salvation. Remember, Adam and Eve never asked for God to cover their shame and nakedness. They didn't even know he could. They didn't ask. But but God had the ability to do so before he ever made Adam and Eve. Understand? So before you came on the scene, before I was born into this world, the plan of salvation already had been fulfilled through the death of Jesus Christ, but it already had been conceived in eternity past before we had ever even been thought about. So that's the beauty of, of this salvation. So we, we can't run around here boasting about, well, look what I did. I, I'm the one that made the skins that cover my shame and my guilt and my grief. So what, what have been your skins in the past that you might have used? Well, some people today, they think, well, you know, it's Thanksgiving time and I'm just going to go volunteer at the shelter and I'm going to help feed the hungry. And that's going to be my good deed for the year. And God's going to be pleased with me where you ought to go and help feed and volunteer at a shelter. But that's not going to give you any any standing with God. As you did that or somebody else may come along and say, well, you know, I, I really think if, um, if if I get involved with uh, helping to get as many people as want to be baptized in water, if I can get them baptized in water, I'm going to get them in the kingdom of God. Well, I can tell you right now, there's been a lot of preachers that have baptized devils. Yeah, went down a dry one, came up a wet one. Never, ever changed their heart because it doesn't have anything to do with water has everything to do with what the king is doing down here on the inside of the heart and even Peter made it very plain that baptism is a a sign of the washing away of sin that gives us with God a pure conscience so it's an outward external testimony of what God has inwardly done inside of me. So this is why I stand up and I witness to what God has done in my life. And when I go down in the water and come up, everybody starts clapping and praising God because they say, yes, God has done the work in you. And we we also stand here and testify that we're glad to see what he's doing. Yeah, absolutely. But Ephesians 2 said it's not about anything that that you can boast of. Uh, now let's let's think of this uh, quickly. If you could create a religion, <laughs> would you create one like this? I mean, if you could make up on your own a faith that would get people to heaven, and one 
that would lead you into a deeper relationship with Christ? Would you create one that you've got to take up across daily and die daily and live a disciplined life? Would you create one that has to deal with self-denial and you setting aside your affections for the things of this world in order to put God first? Of course not. That old nature, that carnal nature wants a religion that promotes that old man and its lusts and habits. And the carnal mind doesn't want to be disturbed. That is why the carnal mind is constantly creating religions that do not disturb it. Because you know when you deal with Christ, it's a problem. The Muslim goes through this life and never truly has assurance in their heart that they have God. Yeah. The Hindu walks through this world hoping that in the next reincarnation that they'll be able to come back in this world possibly with better standing and in a better caste. Think about that. The Buddhist does everything he or she can to reach a state of karma. Want to obtain some kind of peace. Never really can achieve it. And then a host of other religions on this planet. Imagine an atheist. Don't want any kind of faith at all. Say they have no need of God without realizing that Romans chapter 1 says that when you dispense with God, you really become a God unto yourself. You created your own kingdom. You become your own God. Your lifestyle, habits, and customs have become the new rites and rituals for your life. People in this world exactly like that. Ephesians 2 says we don't have any reason to boast because God was kind enough to put this together for us. So since we don't have any reason to boast, let's not try to create different ways in order to get closer to God and to be better with God. You're better with God in Christ. He loves you because you're in his son. Yeah, that's why, because you're connected with his son. Now, one other verse of scripture, and we'll hang our hat here. Romans chapter four, Romans chapter four, which is a chapter that deals with Mr. Abraham. Romans chapter four. And look at verse one. What shall we say then that Abraham, our father, as pertaining the flesh, has found or discovered? Because the preceding verses have been talking about the works of the law. So what did Abraham learn? Because he was 400 or so years before the law. If, if Abraham were justified by works, he has a reason to boast or glory, but not before God. Now look at the end of chapter 3. And notice what it says in verse 27. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. So before there was a Mosaic law, before there was a Moses, before there was an Exodus, hundreds of years before there was Abraham. And Abraham didn't have to do anything in order to curry favor with God. He just simply had to believe. That's it. Just believe. God manifested himself. He appeared to him. Joshua 24 verses 1, 2, and 3 say that your forefathers on the other side of the flood were worshiping and serving other gods. And then I took Abraham. He said, Abraham followed God. And when he followed him, God took one man from that man, created a family from that family, created a tribe from that tribe. He made a nation. And that nation now has become Israel that went down into Egypt that needed to be delivered. But when he took them out of Egypt, he then used Moses to give them a law. So they had principles and statutes that the preceding generations didn't even need. And that was God's plan. So in Abraham's time, all he had to do was believe. And the scripture says he was justified. For fifteen hundred years, we had Moses law right up to the time of Jesus. And when Jesus died on the cross, his death on the cross set aside the rites and rituals of the law. The moral law can still be found in the New Testament epistles, but it set aside the Mosaic law so that we are right now as the seed of Abraham, right back under the conditions in the kingdom where Abraham was before the law. The just shall live by faith. 
not by the works of the law. If you really do believe we can live by the works of the law, just think not of the hundreds of laws that Israel created and the traditions of the elders that Israel created. Think of the traditions that we've created in the last three or four hundred years of the Protestant movements. Yeah, we have traditions that don't have anything to do with salvation. Now for, for people who grew up on ranches, you know, there were some churches years ago wouldn't let a woman wear a pair of pants. Out of the will of God. Got a pair of pants on. Yep. And we've we've told you that there were some denominations here in Nebraska and certainly across the South where 40, 50, 60 years ago, you were going to join those denominations. You had to make sure you signed the document that you wouldn't have a television in that home. God help you if you went to a movie theater, but you definitely didn't have a TV in that house. And you had to sign it, and it had to be a pledge. Ladies, don't you even think about cutting your hair. If you cut that hair, you're cutting old glory. Because 1 Corinthians 11 says a woman's hair is her glory. So if you got it all pent up, you get in church and you shout it down and let it shake and wiggle. But don't you cut it. You can curl it. You can flat iron it. But don't you cut it. See, yeah. Tradition had nothing to do with salvation. I preached a revival one time in North Carolina. I was in Pinehurst, North Carolina. And one night we were out of service. So they invited me to go visit another church with some friends. And we went and stood in the back. And the friend that I had with me had some makeup on. And we're standing there in the back. And the ladies of the church made their way back to where we were. And uh, the ladies got around my friend who loved the Lord, was born again. And, and they just start praying. Say, oh, God, save her. Save her, Lord. She's got that Jezebel paint on her face. God save her. See? Think about this. There are people today who still believe that in southern parts of America. They are still, you can still find some old-time primitive Baptists. You can still find some people out of the holiness restoration movements from the 1880s and 90s, churches of Christ, disciples of Christ, still hold to that. You certainly can still find, you hit the hills of Tennessee and Virginia, some churches of God, assemblies of God and other denominations that hold to that. Let's not mention the fact that we still out here have churches where in the denomination, the guys sit on one side of the sanctuary that ladies sit on the other side of the sanctuary, and if they have a church meeting or business meeting, if you're a lady, you better not even show up. Because all you're required to do or are permitted to do is vacuum the floor and fry that chicken. But don't you tell us, men, anything about what we're doing. See, None of that has anything to do with God, but so many people believe these are traditions That'll further you in your relationship with the king. Finishing up now, verse number three in Romans four. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh, see, is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. So if you're earning it, God owes it to you. It's like a paycheck. Verse five, but to him that does not work, but believes. So notice that there's a contrast now between working and believing. Paul does not consider believing to be a work. I've had discussions with people. They say, well, look, if you're saying that you believe God and you came to Jesus and you trusted him on your own, that's work salvation. I said, that's a lie. You can see it right there in Romans 4 with respect to Abraham, verse 5. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. I'm not a puppet. I'm not an inanimate being. God lives inside of me, but I still have a, a, an ability to choose to believe him. See? And that's the contrast there. To him that worketh not, but believeth. So the, the danger of any kind of work salvation is you honestly believe you can earn it. You can't. E even if you thought you could. What, when would you know you've actually earned it? When would you know you've fully paid the debt? 
Now, in one of the other towns where we have a church, I'm not even going to say the name of town. When someone passes away, after they've buried the person, oh, within 10 days, the preacher shows up and the preacher says, now look, your relative was not the most faithful person to the church. However, there is a way we can rectify what might have happened. It's likely he or she is in purgatory. So, if you will commit for one year, three years, give them $40, will slowly be able to get him or her out of purgatory. I can't tell you the number of times I've had people say to me, well, Pastor Darrell, they told me they've got all of his upper body out of purgatory now. Just a little bit longer, his hips and his legs will be free. Now, we hear that, and you and I instantly know There's something wrong with that. But when you've all your life heard that and never taken the time to look through this book for yourself, you can see why so many people are deceived. Utter deception. Yeah, there's a whole lot of money made off of religion, folks. A whole lot of money made off of religion. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, this evening we looked into the scripture. We did our best to deal with it. Uh, with tact and in love. And Father, we know that we are not perfect in any way. And you certainly could point out here and there all kinds of things that are, that are not right with what we believe. But God, as we stand on your word, we are so grateful that you gave your son to die on that cross. And we have full assurance that when we put our head on that pillow tonight, that Father, if we drew our last breath, we're coming up in that first resurrection. Father, I'm asking you to continue to lead and guide and direct us, help to open our eyes and ears to hear the truth in Jesus' mighty name. And everyone said, amen, amen, amen.